Big pools of money, like foundation endowments and family offices, how can their investments align with their impact? Today on Off the Sidelines. Welcome back to Season 2, Episode 9 of Off the Sidelines, your guide to becoming a better investor. The world needs a new generation of great companies, and we need your help. I am your host. I am Chris Wink. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Technically, your guide through your local tech economy. Off the Sidelines is sponsored by Project Entrepreneur, a program by UBS. They want to strengthen the ecosystem for women founders and advance inclusive capital. That includes diversifying the pipeline of investors and supporters. Speaking of which, today, you might make a big hairy line between giving away of philanthropic money and the accumulation of that money. But a growing number of foundations and family offices think that separation is just silly. How could your view of impact be both for profit and for good? Today, I am joined by Technically's assistant editor, Stephen Babcock. Well, Chris, hello there. So, Stephen, I, I think this is going to be one of those episodes where we got to start with some definitions. So foundation endowments and family offices, why are we even grouping them together? Right. So a foundation and a family office might sound like very different things from very different parts of the federal tax code or whatever, but there are some similarities in approaches. For one, both start with a big pot of money. Oodles of cash. Yeah, yeah, that's square one. A family office, it's kind of a general term. It's an organization or even a collection of entities that lead financial management for ultra high net worth individuals and families. So like Chris, take this example. When I eventually established the Babcock family office to manage all of my journalism billions, I could, in that case, set up both the Babcock Wealth Advisory Firm to earn maximum returns at all costs. And separately, I could have the Babcock Family Foundation to help manage my taxes and, you know, help me get into heaven. If, like, say I really want to make sure that we're addressing climate change so the world is still around for my kids, I could have my Family Foundation donate to nonprofits that I think are doing important work that isn't yet fulfilled by the market. And my Wealth Advisory could, like, hold positions in publicly traded companies that are making environmental change. Got it. So so foundations, they can range from a tiny tax strategy for an individual like the Babcock Family Foundation, or they could be these massive billion-dollar foundations you probably have heard of, the Ford Foundation, Knight Foundation, say. No matter their size, the point you're making is that both foundations and family offices, they, they are essentially pools of money that are both managed and distributed in order to send those dollars out into the world towards some goal. Right. So the trend in this episode is that we're seeing better coordination between how foundation endowments and family offices make their money and fulfill the impact and missions they might hold, whether that's philanthropic or not. Right. So the classic disjoint between those goals would be if the Babcock Wealth Advisory and the Babcock Family Foundation Endowment Money Manager were both investing heavily in the oil and gas industry, while your startup investments and your grant manager are focused on, on your clean energy pursuits. Totally. And that is this episode of Off the Sidelines. How can foundation endowments and family offices align their investments for impact? All right. I love it. I'm excited. I'm in. Steven, you did a couple interviews with people who are really leading this trend to help us see how this is happening in the real world. 
That's right. My first conversation started with someone who wants to make clear that they're not in charity work. The Untourist Foundation is absolutely an investor. Our entire modest endowment is in a revolving loan fund that we invest in world-enhancing small businesses that are solving social, economic, and environmental issues. That's Elizabeth Killo, the co-CEO of the Untourist Foundation. Her organization gives low-interest loans to businesses that are working to build healthy, sustainable communities around the world. So Untours is unique. Rather than half the house growing an endowment and half the staff giving that endowment away, Untours makes loans to companies that fit their mission. The endowment and the mission are very aligned. That's right. And Elizabeth helps us here with our conversation because she's not only working with businesses as the co-CEO of the foundation, but she's also speaking with other foundation leaders about the importance of impact investing. So that can mean a lot of different things to different people. For some foundations, it can mean they take equity stakes or, or make loans, allowing them to work with both nonprofits and for-profits. For the family offices, that phrase might mean that they make direct private market business investing and they make it an asset class that they are seeking above market returns while fulfilling the worldview or strategies of the firm. Then that can have a social good aspect too. Exactly. But that also brings up the question, what is impact enough? We need more perspective on how these types of investors decide what companies fit that thesis. Impact is is kind of in the eye of the beholder. And just like, you know, we have people internally and externally that are doing due diligence on every fund and every company in which we invest on the financial side, we have to do the same level of due diligence on the impact side. And that's Lauren Cochran. Lauren is the managing director at Blue Haven Initiative, a Massachusetts-based family office that's dedicated to seeking social, environmental, and commercial rates of return. They're especially interested in investing in early-stage companies based in sub-Saharan Africa. That does a couple things for them. It fulfills an impact goal while also being an example of an emerging market where they manage risk with expectations of high rates of growth. Got it. Beautiful. All right, Stephen. So Elizabeth and Untours, they show us a way that foundation investing can be done way differently. And Lauren of Blue Haven here has the family office's perspective. Hey, you asked, uh, I delivered, you know, you got it. All right. So I want to come back to Lauren and family offices. But first, let's start our conversation with Elizabeth with that new foundation look. Here she is giving examples of the kinds of companies that Untours invests in. So one example is Tonle in Cambodia, and they make clothing out of remnants left over from other factories. They pay their workers fair wages and have a beautiful workshop. So they're an answer to fast fashion, and they're raising the issue in the fashion industry of the waste that happens and the terrible working conditions. Another example is Wash Cycle Laundry, that started in Philadelphia and is now in Boston and Washington, D.C. In Philadelphia, they do all of their pickups and deliveries on bikes. They use super green washers and dryers, eco-friendly laundry detergent. And they came into existence just to hire returning citizens from prison and drug rehab. So they're solving lots of problems at once. Great. Just thinking about how you're going about sourcing investments, I think when we a lot of times when we think of foundation, there's sort of the program officer who who has kind of a bunch of grant applications. But when you're talking about making making these kinds of the loans, the the equity investments that you're 
considering how do you source those how do you how do you go about evaluating those i think the process looks much the same as foundations that look for nonprofits to give grants we look for investments that is businesses that are fulfilling our mission we get to know the businesses as one would a nonprofit for a grant we do the due diligence and from there make the decision to invest or not we spend time with the entrepreneurs we do what most investors would do look at business plans and projections history of the company if there is a history and just dig as deeply as we can but in a warm and supportive way we're not shark tank excellent so set this up for us a little bit here. Do you kind of have a set pool of, of funds that, you, that you've set aside that you're looking to invest? Where does that live? We try to have it live in businesses. We try to keep it out on the street at all times and have it in our credit union account very little. So we keep a pipeline of businesses that are ready to receive the funds once they're returned from other businesses. So it's it's a modest fund, but it's a revolving loan fund. Yeah, that's really interesting. And yeah, just the I you know, we think about so often of interviewing venture capitalists of of they've got kind of the hundred million dollar fund and then and then you go kind of invest that down, invest that down, and then go raise again, right? But so yours is more on a revolving basis. So. Yes. Interesting. And then when you think about that revolving fund, another thing we often come run into is is frankly, the returns, right? There's when folks do invest and especially when it's equity, I mean, a lot of times you're thinking about what am I going to, what's my return on that going to be? First of all, we would ideally like to get our investment principal back, (laughs) but we are early stage investors, which makes us fairly high risk investors. So we know from the start that not all of our investments will come back. Put COVID on top of that and the risk is even higher. But we look for entrepreneurs who are taking the reach to solve key poverty, employment, energy, health, etc. issues. Hopefully they will be profitable and we will get our principal back with interest if we give a loan or with a little growth if we invest equity. Mm, yeah, absolutely. As far as mentorship, do you, is there a role there for, that you play and how do you think about you know, what the role is for, for you at the foundation as far as coming in and, and you know, rolling up your sleeves, as they say, in the VC world? We work closely with our investees, offering lots of support all the way from pro bono legal help to introducing them to other funders and offering to go with them when they make funding pitches. We're now introducing some of our investees to other foundations for investments, but few foundations are ready to take that step. We want them to succeed and whatever they need, we try to provide. And we pick really fun investees too, so it makes the trip fun and inspiring for all of us. So set this up a little bit here for, I I mean, so what is that work? You know, can you talk a little bit about that work that you're doing and and what you think about um, generally how how endowments are are kind of structured and, and, you know, what you're seeing out there? Yes, um, I love this question. Fiduciary responsibility means fulfilling the foundation's mission. It doesn't mean standing guard over an endowment. 
If an endowment is in a Wall Street portfolio, it's probably working against the foundation's mission. So those board members are not fulfilling their fiduciary responsibility. There's a myth that Wall Street is prudent, secure, and not risky, while all outside ventures are risky. But in fact, many foundations felt the risk during the 08-09 downturn and panicked, and then again at the start of COVID. Investing, for example, in a mortgage to help a grantee purchase a building could be quite secure for a foundation and would offer income to them. Most importantly, it would further the foundation's mission by supporting one of its grantees. Ventures don't need to be as risky as the ones the Untours Foundation takes. Lastly, I would simultaneously argue that foundations need to get out of their comfort zone and take more risks. We all know that we're in the sixth period of mass extinction. We all know that millions of people may be losing their homes due to COVID, and the list goes on. So how do you think about that idea of risk when you're entering it alongside companies? And and how do you talk about that when you're talking with others? When I talk with other foundations, I try to explain to them that there's risk in the stock market too. And there are things they can trade out for the stock market that will match their mission and could even have lower risk. For example, we're invested in a CDFI, Community Development Financial Institute in, in Michigan, with a framework of addressing racial equity. That's the sole purpose of that CDFI. They pay us 3% interest. A foundation could swap out its money market where it's getting what, 0.001% interest right now for an investment in the CDFI. They could earn more money. I think it would be more secure than many money markets and they could be addressing racial equity. So I look for for swaps for them and to encourage them that it's not as scary as they think. As Elizabeth explained, Untours is obviously looking to invest in businesses that can grow and become sustainable. And they also work hard to get to know the entrepreneurs they work with to make sure that their businesses are truly fulfilling Untours' mission. Right. And, And make no mistake, the foundation sees itself as an investor. That's a trend we're seeing among many foundations. And in this case, the entire Untours endowment, which Elizabeth characterizes as modest, is a revolving loan fund. Right. And with that endowment, the emphasis is on growing businesses that are addressing systems. As Killa put it, they're solving many problems at once. That business in Cambodia, it's seen as an answer to fast fashion and pays workers fair wages. This emphasis on both the financial and social returns of investment is an increasing trend. So that's the foundation's bit. Let's get the family office perspective on this. Here's Lauren explaining this further. First of all, we're not a foundation. We are an LLC that invests in a commercial way and supports you know, both the lifestyle, the philanthropic giving of the family, as well as sort of the general staff, like my team that, that works on the investment side and others. So we don't have one impact area that we're particularly focused on, but because we kind of start from this place of we want to be an example for institutional investors that you can feel good about your portfolio as well as make money, we try and just seek out the the best in class kind of representatives across impact areas and within each asset class. And love the term to get the definition of the term since we're doing education. So you mentioned ESG. So what is that? 
Yes. Um, so environmental, social, and governance. Um, and what that means is that those managers are taking to, into account different areas within each of those kind of sub-verticals. So those, those factors actually matter from both a financial return perspective, and also we just want to make sure from impact perspective that that's the bare minimum that our company's standards that they're keeping. Mm-hmm. was also just curious, knowing that, as you mentioned, yes, you're measuring returns, obviously, all any portfolio manager or investor is, but are you also measuring impact, uh, you know, applying those standards or how does that kind of work if you are? So we and our advisors kind of will build an impact report every year that takes that kind of nuance into account. And what we really look for is how impact is directing an industry or creating opportunity from an investment perspective. So, um, education technology has been a huge area of growth over the past few years and how students and teachers and other stakeholders are engaging with those platforms is kind of an impact metric, but it's also kind of a financial metric. And so we've got a few um, ed tech focused funds. And when we look at the impact, we're actually looking at like, okay, are people learning better? Because that is in fact uh, a way for us to measure the fact that, that the companies will do well and their customers will be sticky and that sort of thing. You know, I mean, I think we're looking here at how this is kind of something that folks are starting to incorporate and how they can incorporate. But you all at Blue Haven are, are all in on impact investing, right? So um, how did that kind of happen? Was that the, the idea from the starter or how, and, and why? And I'll speak a little bit for Liesl. I've heard her talk about this a number of times, but she's she's the one who kind of has driven this since she inherited a fair bit of money when she was quite young and, you know, also inherited with that some traditional advisors. And, you know, she's it was in her 20s and wanted to put some of her money into things like microfinance. This is back in the 2000s. And um, they sort of patted her on the head and said, like, oh, that's cute. But like, you can do that with your philanthropic portfolio. Like, don't worry. Like, we know what we're doing on the finance side. And then 2008 happened. And um, in fact, like the microfinance assets that she had invested in did pretty well in, in, in comparison. And so from that, sort of from the financial crisis forward, um, you know, she was super focused on finding an advisor who sort of understood the, this, the market for impact investing, but it was still so new. So this is what sort of evolved is that Imprint was in its own kind of class of, of groups that had experts in each asset class. But most financial advisors sort of said, oh, we'll throw like two people on that impact. And so that worked for a little. It was better than sort of a traditional asset manager. Um, but then Imprint actually got bought by Goldman Sachs in 2015. And that kind of brought the the much larger sort of asset management, um, high net worth individual, like all the things those types of people need to manage their assets um, in an efficient way. So as you're thinking about the other part that we kind of wanted to get at here was the idea of uh, risk that sort of comes with that, with investing in, in, in an earlier stage firm. And, and maybe it's not like you're going to invest in Wall Street, right? Obviously, that's a, a very different conversation. So so how do you think about that risk? And, and yeah, are there ways to kind of understand it as you're getting into things? Yeah, totally. And I think one of the things when people hear about impact investing, like they kind of gravitate towards this early stage company, high risk, that's like directly engaging with low income customers, particularly in Africa. 
And so I always tell people like, if you're just getting into impact investing and you're, um, you know, someone like Liesl that has a bunch of money to, to do this with, like, that's not the place to start. We think there is a lot of impact in investing directly into companies, which is by the way, a trend with family offices more broadly, like a desire to kind of manage your own fund internally and avoid some of the fees. And so we have carved out about 10% of the portfolio for direct investments. And that 10%, I wouldn't say is particularly like scientifically derived, but with any high net worth, I would say it should be the money that you are very comfortable losing because it is, as you said, you know, much riskier than our other asset classes. And so we, we managed the portfolio in-house and, um, Frankly, it was a, it was it was tough and a bit of a like they made twelve investments in um, Latin America, Africa, and the U.S. and a handful did do really well, but a handful did not. And so we decided at the time to focus on early stage venture in sub-Saharan Africa, partially because Liesl and Ian had both spent a bunch of time there and were are super interested in the region. But also that I had lived in Zambia and and had sort of been making um, some direct and fund investments on the continent and have. A really good network there. And so for us, the idea of being able to invest consistently round after round and work with early stage companies that, you know, had really compelling business plans was, was interesting and it seemed like a market opportunity. But from an impact perspective, it's just something, um, you know, you as a family office or an individual want to do. I would just say, A, make sure it's money you are willing to lose. And B, if you want to do it with a significant chunk of your money, then know that it will take up either a lot of your time or someone on your teams. And you should really hire someone that has done it before. And that is something that I feel like a lot of families, they make mistakes with. <laughs> yeah, right. And I do want to go back to one thing just to clarify. So the impact part, I mean, I mean, is the act of sub-Saharan Africa alone the impact part? Or are you kind of looking at the business models and saying, well, they're doing social good or, or the way they're built is in line with ESG as well? Yeah, there are certainly folks that can rightfully argue that just investing in the economies in sub-Saharan Africa is impact. For us, it's a bit it's a bit deeper than that. Um, we have historically focused on investments into companies that provide uh, infrastructure and services to businesses and people that are out of reach of what's already there. And so, what that means in practice is, you know, we've done a fair bit in renewable energy, uh, logistics, and financial services, and more recently in healthcare, um, which is actually an area that we'd started to focus on before the pandemic, which now has obviously risen in importance. And so we are looking at industries where there's some kind of greater impact on the business ecosystem or on individuals, but we're less fussed that like 95% of the customers have to be low income. I can't help but reflect on the fact that you mentioned 2008 kind of as being a foundational moment, you know, for you all and, and the idea that we're in kind of a downturn right now. Obviously, it's very different from a, a stock market perspective. We're thinking about everything so much today in terms of like what's going to be with us during the pandemic and what will be with us after, right? So how do you kind of think about that? Well, I think even before the pandemic, there are a bunch of like macro factors that are influencing the fact that, that impact investing has become more mainstream. 
So I think it's 30 trillion of assets will pass from men to women over the course of the next 20, 15, 20 years. Um, women tend to be much more interested in the social impact of their portfolios. The second is, is millennials are even more concerned with the social and environmental impact of, you know, not just the products they're buying, but like the places they work. And then in the pandemic, obviously, like how workers were treated has become like a pretty big indicator of, you know, where people will invest and shop and, you know, Amazon and others were forced to do the right thing. But I think that it has allowed consumers and investors to sort of take note of the types of companies they're supporting with their dollars. And I think people, boards and public market investors are just starting to understand that like you can't just think about shareholder value, that like shareholder value is also driven by stakeholder value. And so how do you incorporate that into the way you're, you're picking stocks and you're investing over time? I, I think it matters. Right. So this is saying that when you're thinking about how a foundation or family office invests its portfolio, that portfolio manager should say, let's look at businesses that will take a focus on social and environmental returns. One acronym actually came up, and forgive me here, Chris, but the one that Lauren brought up is called ESG. All right. We knew the day would come on off the sidelines. It's here. We need to talk about ESG. Yep. Yep. That's right. It's short for environmental, social, and corporate governance. So the idea here is that you look at how a business's actions are benefiting society and working toward long-term goals that don't only have to do with financial returns. Right. So you're still looking at a financial return, but the idea is that the environment and social good and corporate governance, which means you know who the team is and, and how it's managed that these have to be a central part alongside that financial return to do proper due diligence and portfolio management metrics. Right. And I mean, that does feel different. In some sense, you're considering how this company does business alongside how it can make money. It's just a big rethink. And that idea of a rethink reminds me of one thing that Elizabeth said to me about Untours. She said the endowment is all on the street. Okay, so normally saying the street would conjure up images of Wall Street, which is synecdoche for implying that her endowment, you know, is invested in publicly traded companies to get a return. And like a traditional foundation, she would give out 5% of that endowment as charitable giving each year. But I suspect that Elizabeth and Untours does not mean Wall Street. <laughs> You suspect right. Uh, you think she meant Wall Street, but what she actually means is on the street with businesses. She's saying business has to be done differently. The street we were once associated with investing needs to be rethought. Wow, Stephen, I like it. I think this is a good way to go out. So I'm, I'm pulling the string. Stephen, thank you for being here. Hey, you got it, Chris. All right, that is it. That is the ninth episode of the second season of Off the Sidelines, your investor education podcast. Off the Sidelines is sponsored by Project Entrepreneur, a program by UBS. If you love Off the Sidelines, if you like it, you know what I'm going to say. Subscribe, do it, please. And before you cut me off, leave a review. That means even more. Like always, music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks to the reporting of Stephen Babcock and the time from Elizabeth Killo and Lauren Cochran. This episode was produced by Q9 Creative, including Kevin Schmidlin and Catherine Nails, with post-production by Max Graham. I am technically CEO Chris Wink. We'll be back next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>